0: I was called to to ministry, called to preach in between my um, eighth and ninth grade years in high school. And so as I was kind of growing and developing in that, um, my pastor in Dyersburg would try to give me opportunities to speak. And when you're a 17 or 18 year old high school student, there are not lots of big churches saying, hey, man, can he come preach on Sunday morning for us? And so my pastor, who was really involved in the local Association of Baptist Churches there, got me speaking engagements in all these small churches around Dyersburg. Places like Bogota and Evansville and Rowellen, And even places outside into Lauderdale County, into some big places like Frog Jump and uh, Gold Dust and Art. Places like that, right? And so I would tour around. When I, was in, when I was in college, we used to do... Um, Uh, They did these things called revival teams at Union, and they'd send you out, and um, so you got to go to places like Jacks Creek and Hohenwald and all this stuff and preach, right? And every time that I did that, wherever I went, I would always begin my message by walking out on stage and doing right on the platform. And by the way, in some of these churches, platform is a very generous word for what was actually there, right? For the step that I was standing on, um, and I would say. um, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Honestly, for the first five years that I preached, I think every sermon I preached began with those words Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And as I think through those words, the reason I used them, the reason I thought about them, the reason they were a part of my life is because that was my attitude I wanted every time I came into a place where the Word of God was going to be shared. It's what I wanted in my own life as I was sharing. That's what I wanted in the lives of the people that I would be hearing. And it developed within me this habit. One of the things that happened um, is that when I was preaching in those small churches all around, um, my uh, I had this little entourage that would follow me. Wherever I was preaching, that particular week, they would be there. Now, primarily the entourage was made up of my mom and dad, all right? And so mom and dad, when I had to apologize to Brother Boston and say, listen, I'm sorry, they're following me around, they're around. And so um, he understood, but um, in fact, my mom, my mom and dad still do that a little bit mom commented on facebook last week on our church website about my sermon she didn't talk to me about it she commented on facebook about it. i told eli and he was like your mom still cares enough about you to listen to your sermons like yes that's what you do right when you're mom's and so like i would go around and i would speak and so they knew this kind of routine now i remember there was a time when dad and mom came to hear me somewhere only this is when i was in college and i didn't use that opening psalm 139 i just used an illustration and started to preach and uh, Dad walked up to me afterwards, and I, I remember this. Mom and Dad were sitting there talking to me and, you know, doing the oh, it's great honeys, good job, and we're so glad we got to be here. And Dad just looked at me, and Dad just said, you know, some habits you don't have to break. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, you can talk, use that verse every time for the rest of your life if you want to. It's okay. It was like his thing. Some habits you don't have to break. And I thought about that as I was preaching this series. Jeff didn't know I was thinking about that. And then Psalm 139 comes how God kind of works it together. But we're talking about habits you don't have to break. The idea in our society is almost all habits are bad habits. Almost all routines are bad routines. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us that we need to develop habits that will develop us. And over the last few weeks, we've started this series, and we're going to continue it for a few series going forward, where we are going to be talking about the habits that help develop who we are. One of the quotes we've kind of used throughout this series is that we are not what our goals are, what we want to be, what we desire to be. We are what we do consistently. And so it's not our goals, it's not what we're dreams, I mean we all can list out dreams of what we want to be, who we want to be, what we want to be about, but that's not really who we are. We are what we do consistently. And so we started a couple of weeks ago talking about the idea of habit, the idea of doing things repetitively over and over in order that it could develop us into the people. We've used the picture of the turtle and the slow and steady wins the race and saying that in our society we need to embrace that lifestyle. Kind of the pictures that we've used to describe the difference between our society and what God calls us to be is the difference between a piñata that's happy on the outside, exciting on the outside, but is hollow or at least filled with sugary stuff that gives you a quick high and makes you move on to the next thing. What God desires for us is not to be a piñata, but to be an iceberg. That is beautiful at the top. That is something that gains the attention of the world. But is deep and stable and solid underneath. In order to do that, we have to develop these daily patterns, these habits, these rituals that help develop us into the people that God calls us to be. And our goal is that over time, God would create us to be the people He wants us to be. Now, here's the thing about habits they don't form instantaneously. And they don't show results instantaneously. Like it takes time. I read a quote this week that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's this quote that says that we overestimate what we can do in a year. And we underestimate what we can do in a decade. Like we think that we have these big goals. So New Year's comes around and we say, you know what? I'm getting 20 pounds off this year. I'm gonna get out of debt this year. No more debt. I know I got three cards maxed out. No more debt this year. I'm getting out of debt and I'm losing twenty pounds this year. Then we get two months in and we go, you know what, I'm doing all right. Only got twenty four more pounds to lose. Some of you will get that like at lunch, right? And you're getting out of debt and then you realize that you're moving along and the refrigerator breaks. The air conditioning goes out. And you gotta have new tires. Well, there it is. Can't do it this year. Have to wait till next January to get going again. Or if we focused on what we could do over the long term. Here's the thing. I don't know if you can put, take 20 pounds off if you need to do that this year. But you can do that in a decade. You can change a lifestyle that changes your health in a decade. I don't know if you can get out of debt this year. How many cards you've got. But I can guarantee you that you've, with the right principles and the right habits. You can get out of debt in a decade. The idea is we overestimate what we can do in the short term and we underestimate what can be in the long term. And our goal is to develop these habits, these disciplines, these spiritual delights that help us to become the people that place us in the place where God's going to bless us. Last week we talked about scripture. We talked about memorization, the idea of putting Scripture into our brains. And I'm not going to ask how many of you have started memorizing or even what you're memorizing. I've talked to some people. I know that it's happening. I know that it's out there. And the first service, somebody told me they discovered real quickly they got too much stuff in their brain. They can't put anything else in. So they're working getting some of that stuff out. Right? But you just work at it. You work at it. I'll tell you, as a, as a kind of a added um uh, maybe uh, motivation to you. Um, in the first service, uh, I had uh, Alex Castro come out the back and talk to me. And Alex and Danny are memorizing James one together, and they're about four or five verses in already on the way. All right. And so Alex is one is a young guy. He's um, he's memorizing it. Danny, who is his dad, who's older, is memorizing it. So. Uh, Hopefully you're in the process of choosing, of getting ready and moving forward. But not just memorization. We talked about meditating, thinking about it, savoring it, dwelling deeply on it. So one of the regular ways that God speaks through people, develops people, those habits that we need, is taking Scripture in and then really thinking about it deeply. But today we're going to talk about a second one that is right related to that. And that is the discipline, the habit of prayer. Scripture and prayer go hand in hand. Scripture is where we hear God speak to us. Prayer is where we speak to God, where we have that conversation with Him. And our prayers are almost always developed on what we have heard Him speak to us in Scripture. That's one of the reasons today, even as we've prayed, we've tried to tie our prayers to Scripture. This is what Scripture is. That's why we did Psalm 139 and walked through that, praying through it. That's why at the very beginning we talked about Jesus being a person of prayer. So we have to be people that develop if we want to be who God calls us to be, the habit of prayer. The truth is, my guess is, most of us in this room pray, and there are two specific times that we pray. And the first one is, a lot of us in this room pray at meals. So we get together at meals and we pray. So we're around the table with family. In my family, there's a little bit of a dispute sometimes about who gets to pray because they want to pray. Kids are asking to pray. Daddy always kind of finishes up on the end, but unless we're really hungry and it's we're said it's a long prayer, the one you know, then we just go. But generally, there's a discussion about it. We know that prayer is going to happen there. The second time is when something goes wrong in our lives. So when something happens bad, when something unexpected goes on, when somebody moves out of our lives or something happens physically for us, when financial difficulties come, when career problems happen, we pray. And so we pray at meals and we pray when something bad goes on. And just a thought for you, all right, just thinking about this, because we're going to talk about other motivations to pray. But if the only times you go to God in prayer is at meals and when you have trouble in your life and God desires to have conversation with you in prayer, why in the world would he be motivated to take the pain and the problems out of your life? If the only time you're going to him is prayer is when you've got pain, when you've got problems, why would he say, you know what, I'm going to take that out so you'll forget all about me again? You see, the Old Testament has this pattern in the book of Judges where they do exactly that. God, we need you. God, we need you. We're in trouble. And God comes and he sends a judge and he rescues them. And then they rescued and they go, all right, God, that was cool. That was awesome. We'll see you later. Then they get in trouble again. God, we need you. Man, we need you. We're in trouble. We got this enemy. They're about to attack us. They've got us in the corner. What are we going to do, God? God sends a judge and he delivers them. They go, man, that was awesome, God. We'll see you later. For many of us, the pattern of our lives are very simple. So the question I want to ask today is really twofold. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus to answer both of these questions. The the question I want to ask today is, why should we pray? What's the motivation behind it? And my goal is not to guilt you into praying. When you leave here today, I hope you do not say, man, I feel so guilty. I'm not praying. I'm going to go home and pray. But do you know how long that motivation will last? Like till you get to the car. My goal is not to get you to go, man, man, I I just feel so guilty I've got to pray. I want to give you a reason to pray. And the second thing is I want to talk about what we pray, what it looks like. The first thing I want you to understand is that our lives will change when we move to praying not based upon problems that we have or difficulties in our life, but as preparation, provision, and protection for the life God has called us to live here and now. Because here's the reality. You and I get one shot at this life to do what God has called us to do. One shot to make the impact God has called us to make. One shot to make the difference God has called us to make. And you say, well, how does that apply to Jesus? Jesus understood better than anyone that his life had one purpose. And if you look at the prayers, which we are in a minute, of his life, what you will see is he is Focused completely on accomplishing what God has called him to accomplish, even when it wasn't easy for him to do it. You get one shot. The kids loved it a couple of weeks ago when I was able to use their lingo in such a clear way, talking about getting turnt and the party was going to be lit. And so I thought I'd use another one of their terms today. It's exciting about this. I mean, they all came up to me and said, Pastor, you're the coolest guy I've ever met in my life, that you're able to do that. And so there's this, and the thing is, you realize that when you're a pastor and you start using youth lingo, two things happen. One is, it probably means they've already moved past that lingo, that it's not cool. Secondly, it means that when you use it, they will move past it regardless All right. And so if you listen to life in general over the last couple of years, there's been this phrase, catchphrase that's coming on from young people and artists and entertainers that tells people that you get one shot to do it right. Right. It's just four letters. And it means you only live once. YOLO, right now, listen, I'm a little older, so when I hear YOLO, I think ROLO. And I think of those caramel goodness that comes, right? So like YOLO, ROLO. Well, here's the thing. YOLO is right, you know, but not the way that the culture today uses it, because usually they do it before something they're about to do that is insane. Like I'm going to jump off this cliff into a shallow pool of water. I don't know how deep it is. YOLO! Right? Right? I'm about to tie myself to the back of a motorcycle and let someone drag me down the street. YOLO! Like, is that how you do it? Good, thanks, Eli. I appreciate that. All right. So the idea is you only live once. Just live it full out. Go all you got. Take chances. But here's the truth. We only get one shot at this. That's true. You only live once. But we ought to use that not in reference to do whatever crazy thing we want to do but to do exactly what God has called us to do in making a difference here and now for the future of eternity. If you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be in two or three different places. I'm going to start in Luke 5. You don't have to turn. there. There's just one verse. We've already looked at it today. But I want you to be in John chapter 12 because we're going to look at a passage of Scripture there where we see Jesus focus on this. And I want you to understand what's behind it by looking at this verse in Luke chapter 5. We looked at it at the very beginning, if you were here before we did the prayer. And the idea is it tells us that Jesus often, not sometimes, not occasionally, not every so once in a while, but Jesus often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. So I began to think this week, so what does that mean? Okay, so he prayed. Well, do we know what he prayed? Do we know how he prayed? Do we know what was in the content of his prayer? And we do have a couple of prayers of Jesus in Scripture, but we also know that what we have as Jesus' prayers is very limited compared to the number of prayers he said. The disciples, when they got a chance to question Jesus about something, they didn't ask, how do you teach like you teach? They didn't ask, how do you heal like you heal? They didn't ask, how do you walk on that water? What they ask is, could you teach us how you pray? So we know this was a dominating force in his life. And so I asked the question, do we know what was the content of this prayer? Do we know what this prayer was about? And so I looked at the original word for prayer here. As I looked at it, it's a Greek word. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here. So prayer is pros ukaminos. And all God's people said, What? <laughs> Say what? All right. Well, here's what I'm gonna tell you. It's actually two words. So right there after pros, that's pros. I know you can I know you all know that, but that's pros. Right after pros is the second word, ukaminos, and pros means to, towards like uh, you're progressing towards, you're processing towards, you're going to, you're going towards, all right? And ukaminos means exchanging of wishes. And so when you put those two together, what you get is prayer is actually moving forward to exchange wishes. And you go, what? Well, so, okay. Here's what it means for Jesus, all right? It means... That is, as Jesus is praying, what he's doing, the idea behind the word is he is coming towards the Father. He is coming towards God. And he is exchanging his desires, his wishes, his agenda, his wants, his life for whatever God has in store for him. He is taking everything in his mind that he thinks ought to happen. He is laying it at the feet of Jesus and says, I'm going to exchange this. Jesus lays it at the feet of the Father and says, I'm going to exchange this for whatever you have for me. And so at the essence, prayer is going to God and saying, here's what I want. Here's what I desire. And I'm laying it down. And I'm telling you, Whatever you want for me is what I need. Now that sounds real spiritual. That sounds really cool. That sounds awesome. But it can get real practical really quickly and be very difficult. Because that means you go to the Father and you say, listen... You know what, for my kids, I think this would be awesome if this could happen to my kids. And this would be really cool if you would protect them in this area. And for my kids, if you would take care of them here and not ever let them do this. And Lord, if you could just keep them safe and kind of good and like be good kids and all that, that would be awesome. But God, I want whatever you want for my kids. Your wisdom is better than mine. Or going to the Lord and saying, listen, God, here's my business plan. I have worked on this for like months. I have been thinking about it for years. This is what I'm going. This is my career path. Like this is where I'm going. God, if I could just put that up there and say, this is it. And you could just say awesome and rubber stamp that. That'd be awesome. But instead going to him and saying, God, this is my business plan. But if you want me to give up everything I've got planned in order to follow you, I do it. Here's my agenda here's my desire, here's my wants. I'm exchanging them for yours. You think, well, pastor, okay, I see that there, one Greek word. That seems like an awful big assumption to make about what prayer is on one word. Let's look at a couple of places. John chapter 12, starting in verse 23. This is in uh, Jerusalem, the week of Jesus' death. Verse 23 says, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, just a quick uh, question for you. What would it mean, what was going to happen for the Son of Man to be glorified? What do we know on the back end that the disciples did not know when he made that statement? What did it mean for him to be glorified? What happened to happen first? He had to be dead. He had to be crucified, right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. He says, listen, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, dies, it sprouts back up into a plant, that it's by itself. It never produces anything. But once it dies, it begins to sprout. It produces much fruit. Now, obviously, he's talking about his life here, Right. Obviously what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to die, but it is necessary for my death in order for you to grow and for the kingdom to grow and for God's, God's plan to grow. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Next verse. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now let's just stop for a second, a little uh, biblical interpretation uh, idea here for a second. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. We read that often, and we read it, and we go, awesome, that's cool, I'm going to follow Jesus. But we must remember the context in which he said that. What did he just tell them was about to happen to him? He's going to die. He says, listen, a grain has to fall to the ground, it's going to die, it's going to multiply, it's obvious to us, he's talking about himself. Jesus was going to die for our sins. He goes, and if you're going to follow me... If you're going to serve me, you got to follow me where I am, there my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he says, listen, just as I gave up my life for you, you're going to have to be willing to give up your life for others. Now here's the really kind of cool thing about that okay so jesus obviously is going to die he's going to be raised again he's going to be the reason that these guys have life he's going to be the reason these guys have a future he's going to be the reason these guys have a message but here's the other thing that happens everybody in that room except for judas who would betray jesus everyone in that room would give their life for the cause of christ they would fall into the ground as a seed and their blood is the blood That the church grew out of. And then he lets them in on a personal moment. He lets them in on his prayer life. And he says, my soul is troubled. And that's not just speak. That's not just a little bit like I don't feel good. This is like I am deeply, deeply concerned. Like there is something in my heart that I cannot quit wrestling with. Because he knows what's coming. He says, "What should I say? Father, save me from this hour." God, save me. I don't I don't need this. The way it's written, the way we read it, what Jesus is saying is the easiest thing for me to say is, "God, I'm out." Save me from this hour, this hour that is about to come, being betrayed by a friend, being beaten, being tortured, being humiliated in public, being hung naked on a tree, surviving um, one of the worst beatings that would come in the history of the world in order to get to the place where you would be hung on a tree to die. Dying of a, cannot being able to breathe, being there in full display for all to see as the Son of God dies on a cross. Jesus says, my wish, my desire, my agenda, my want is for to be saved. But I'm going to exchange that. My prayer is, my exchange is, my surrender is, Father, glorify your name. Because that's not why I came. And I get one shot. Can I just tell you something real quickly? We're going to look again at another place where he kind of goes through this dilemma. The more famous place where he goes through this dilemma I know sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. And I know sometimes you wonder about the consequences of your own life. But can you imagine for a moment the weight on the shoulders of Jesus as he is deciding the fate of the human race? This isn't an ordinary, hey God, can we just skip this one and maybe figure out another way on the other side? This is the weight of the sin of the world is about to be placed on his shoulders. And if he decides to opt out, if he decides to give in to temptation, then the future of the world is completely different. And he says, God, I exchange my ideas, my wants, my desires for yours. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to see the most famous place where this happens, one that you may be familiar with. But just to show you again this idea of a beautiful exchange, joyful surrender. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 says, he went out and made his way as usual. Again, we talked about that the two weeks ago. The word as usual there means literally as was his habit. Or habitually, this was what he always did. To the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. Now, here's the thing. You ever wondered how Judas knew where Jesus was that night? Like Judas leaves in the middle of the meal, goes and gets the guards, and then doesn't seem to have a whole lot of trouble finding Jesus. You know why I think he knew where Jesus was? Is because praying in the garden is where Jesus was a lot. He didn't have to have a search party out to look for him because this is what Jesus was doing. As usual, Jesus is in the garden praying. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then, then, once he got there with them, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. Now I think this is important because a lot of times we read about Jesus. He gets in a deserted place. He gets away from the disciples. He gets completely alone. We'll look in a second. He tells us in Matthew 6 that there are times in our lives we need to get completely alone and only with God. But here's the deal. At this moment, he withdrew only about a stone's throw for them so they could hear his prayer. This is the last bit of instruction Jesus is going to give his disciples. This is it. They're getting his last words and his last words to them are a prayer. To the Father, and the prayer to the Father is a prayer of exchange. Father, if you are willing, I am asking. This is not some vain request, this is not some empty cry. This is Jesus saying, I want this cup taken away from me if you are willing, if there's another way, if it is possible Father, could you take this from me? I don't want the cross if there's another way. I don't want the suffering if there's another way. I don't want the sins of the world placed upon my shoulder if there's another way. I don't want to look up and feel like you have abandoned me and say, Father and there not be an answer. If there's another way, I want it. But, but, not my will, but yours be done. He goes to the Father and he exchanges his desires, his wishes, his wants for what God intends. Lastly, turn to Matthew 6. And then we're going to be done. This is what I want you to see. The reason behind it is because Jesus realized he had one shot to do what God had called him to do. This was it. You and I have one shot to do what God has called us to do. And so our prayer life is not about, God, can you get me out of this bad situation? And as important as it is, and I'm not saying it's not important, as important as it is to pray for people that are sick and pray for people that need help, it's also important to pray that God would give you the provision and the power and the protection to do what God has called you to do. It is important to say, God, I want your will, not mine. I want to do what you call me to do, not what I want to do. And in Matthew chapter 6, he tells them, he gives an instruction about praying. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, the most important uh, sermon that's ever been given. This is the the best sermon that's ever been given. Chapter 6, verse 5, he says, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by people. He tells them, listen, don't go out and publicize that you're going to pray. Don't make it a big deal. Don't try to say, man, I hope those people listen to me and go, man, that guy can pray. Don't do it to impress people. Don't stand on the street corner and try to get people to realize how good of a prayer you are. But he said they've got their reward. When you pray, go into a private room, shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father will reward you. And then he says, when you pray, mean what you say. Don't think you have to get all complicated. Don't babble like the Gentiles. They imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Don't think you're giving God new information. Like when you go and say, God, man, my, my side really hurts today. God's not like, oh, I didn't know that. Really? Man, I don't know if you know this, Lord, but there's something going on in my family that I'm just not real happy about. Wow. I'm glad you told me. Like, you're not surprising, God. He says, so don't come trying to use fluffy words. Don't talk like you wouldn't normally talk. Don't act like you're somebody different than you normally are. Just talk. Just speak. Just pray. Then he says, they just ask like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation deliver us from the evil one. A couple of things about that prayer, and then we're going to kind of wrap around it and finish up. A couple of things. First of all, this is not Jesus saying that this is exactly the words you ought to pray every time you pray. He just talked before that, don't say words you don't mean. Don't babble things that you don't understand. He's saying this is a model of how you should pray. And the second thing I want you to see is it is a very deeply personal prayer. Our Father. The idea there is that we have a God that we can go to. We have a God that we can love. We have a God that has loved us. We have a God that has reached out to us. When we say our Father, Jesus uses here the word of intimacy with Dad, the words of intimacy with the one who loves me, the one that I can count on, the one that I can run to. And there are times I know, and some of you in this room have dads, that if you look in your life, you're like, that was not the experience of my dad. A loving, gentle, patient, kind, good, graceful Father. Father, is not the image of my dad. God says not that he's going to be like your, your earthly dad, but that he is going to be the ultimate example of what a dad should be. He is our daddy. You see, prayer is simply having a conversation with God. It's simply talking to him about what's going on in your life and trusting he cares. He's already told us he cares. He's already asked us about what our day, he wants to have a conversation with us. He wants us to know that he cares. He says, come to me, you who are weary. He tells us to approach him in prayer. There is not a question in our mind that if we go to God, that he's going to turn us down. I was thinking this week about the conversational aspect of prayer and how we go into a relationship with Almighty God. And I was thinking about how it is already set up that when we go to Him, He is there to listen and wants to have a conversation. I thought about my uh, teenage years. When I grew up in uh, Dyersburg, I went to Dyersburg High School. Dyersburg High School, once a month, would have these little get-togethers that where we would um, all stand on opposite sides of the uh gymnasium, and a guy would be there and play music, and they'd, uh, they called it a dance. Uh, not many people did that. They just kind of walked around and talked. But you, it, socially, you were supposed to go to these things. And socially, uh, there were three or four in a year where you weren't supposed to go alone. So we had homecoming. We had Miss DHS. We had these kind of things. And so I was thinking back to when I was a teenager, I was not what you would call the most outgoing guy when it came to... Uh, asking girls to those kind of events. And so it would be coming up, dances coming up, homecomings coming up in three weeks. You start to hear all the ones that are getting picked, you know, already. And you're like, man, it's probably time for me to think about this. And so you get somebody in your mind and, and I go upstairs in my room and I'd say, all right, this is who I'm calling. I'm going to ask her if she wants to go to this dance with me. And there would be a, uh, my phone was there and that's going to shock some of you. It was a, an orange, Tennessee touch tone landline phone how many of you remember those kind of phones right how many of you've never seen a phone connected to the wall all right right so you I had my own i had my own line like in high school that was a big deal i had my own line Upstairs. And so I would look at it and I would get ready and I'd have the phone number that I had to get from somebody because you, you know, you had to get these, you had to go through routes. You couldn't let her know you were getting it. You had to get it. And so I'd have the number laid out there and I'd get ready to call and I would sit there and I would dial the first six numbers and I'd hang up. And I only did that about 45 times. And then, and then I would dial the seventh number and hang up real quick, hopefully that the caller ID had not yet received the information on the other line, right? And then you would finally let it go to the point where it was ringing, and you were just like, please don't let it be her dad. Please don't let it be her dad. Like, I want to, and not her dad, right? And so dad would pick up, uh, yes, and my first words would be, oh, yeah, I was, <clears throat> Um, could I please uh, speak with? And then you ask, and you'd say, I was wondering if we could go to, you know. And most of the time that turned out okay. I did have the couple of times of, well, I was just kind of, you know, you're just such a good friend. It's, it's ridiculous. All right. And so <laughs> you had those moments. As you grew older, you learned to do something different. You'd get one of her friends to ask her beforehand, if I called tonight and asked, would she say yes? Right. I know y'all do that through text now. We didn't have that. All right. And so you would do a note or you would talk at the locker or whatever. And so then you would call knowing the answer was going to be. Here's the thing. When you pick up prayer to talk to the Father, the answer's always yes. You don't have to worry about it. In fact, here's the reason most of us are kind of reluctant to pray, like I've talked about today. It's because we're afraid God is going to ask us to give up that stuff that we've counted on, that we liked, that we want, that we desire, that we wish. But Scripture makes it abundantly clear. That when we give up something to him, he always rewards us with something better. In fact, it says, if an earthly father, you ask him for a present, he's not going to give you a snake. He said, how much more is your heavenly father going to care about you? Man, I know some I know some of you may not have had a good experience with a dad. Man, I have. And I love my dad and my dad has been awesome for me. Um, I mentioned he asked about the break of a habit and really invested. And here's what happens every Sunday morning now, every Sunday morning, right around 7 o'clock. Usually on my way here or after I've gotten here or when I'm getting ready to leave the house, I get a text from my dad. Now, here's the thing. There are a couple of shocking things about this text from my dad. First of all, I never imagined I would be saying I got a text from my dad. Alright, I just didn't imagine that. Secondly, my dad, when I was growing up, was not the most committed man to Christ. He was a good man. He didn't do anything to hurt us. He wasn't a bad guy. He's a baseball coach, but he didn't go to church. He worked seven days a week, seven to eight hours a day at least at a rubber manufacturing plant. He was a bad guy. He just wasn't the committed guy. And when I I mentioned earlier that I was called to ministry through my 8th and ninth grade year. That week I was called to ministry. I came home and some things had changed in my parents' life. Some very visible things, but then I began to notice over time that some of their habits had changed. My dad went from working seven days a week to working six to working five. And Sunday was the day he had off and he started going to church with us more. Two things revolutionized my dad's spiritual life. He, after I got into college, began to read his Bible every day. And secondly, he began to keep a prayer list and he began to pray. And when I was 13 years old, I never would have said my dad was a man of God's word and a man of prayer. But I can say without a doubt that my dad today is a man of God's word and a man of prayer. Now, here's the thing. Every Sunday morning at 7 o'clock or right there, he was late this morning, 7-11, He sends me a text that just simply says, Lyle, praying for you and for the people of First Baptist today as you bring the word God has laid on your heart. I never have any doubt that my dad wants what's best for me. And that's my earthly dad, but even more so that's my heavenly father. And so when we come to him, we come with full confidence that he's going to say yes and that he is invested in this relationship And we exchange with him our desires, our wishes, our wants, our agendas, our plans, our financial status. And we say to God, here it is. What do you want from me? And we joyfully surrender to that. That is what prayer is all about. Let's pray together.